I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints. I'm living in a dumbed-down society, and I don't want to live in a dumbed-down society. And in our society today, we are aggressively, intentionally defunding humanities, social sciences, the arts, history, things that really make us a, a thinking, creative, critical thinking society, things that weave the fabric of our society so we can have a smart electorate. We are defunding that and we are pushing everybody into occupations to make a lot of money so we can be mindless producer consumers. We need to be good workers and productive and so on, but we need to be creative, critical thinkers. In Europe, they've learned the consequences of a dumbed down electorate. They paid a huge price for it in Germany. In the United States, we're paying a huge price for it right now. That's Rick Steves, a name we've come to know over the years. From his popular guidebooks to his ever-popular television and radio shows on the public airwaves, Rick has taken us on fun-filled personal journeys to Europe and has given us insights as only he can. Today on World Footprints, he discusses his newest book, for the love of Europe, and tackle some tough issues in the travel space in a thought-provoking conversation. With travel on hold for many of us, Rick included, we introduce a side of him seldom seen. Joining us from his home in Washington State, Rick helps us understand and appreciate his social activism as well as his belief that we should travel to broaden our perspectives. That's a big reason why this conversation is powerful. In a typical year, Rick spends about four months a year in Europe, researching guidebooks, refining his tour program, filming his TV show, and uncovering new things to share. And it never gets old for him. But this is a different year for Rick, one filled with new discoveries at home and a lot more time with family. Here's our conversation with Rick Steves. Rick, welcome back. It's good to see you again and good to have you again on World Footprints. Nice to be with you. So listen, you know, we're both travel journalists, but we're all in a pandemic that doesn't allow us to travel. And I'm going crazy. I don't know about my husband. What are you doing and how are you coping right now? Well, I'm running my business, which I still have 100 people on my payroll, so that takes some time. I'm working on uh, projects that are content-related, producing content that will be of value when we come out of this. Got a lot of work with our guidebooks and with our TV show and with our radio show. TV and radio carry on, obviously. My big part of my work is uh, our tour business. And, uh, um, you know, we took 30,000 people on 1,000 different tours last year. This year, we had over 20,000 people signed up, and a big part of our work was just giving uh, refunds to all those people. That's a lot of refunds, 20,000 refunds. That's really uh, consumed us for a while. But personally, I'm, like my staff and like you guys, homebound. This is my first summer in Seattle in 30 years. Uh, every year I go to Europe, it's my thing. I spend 100 days in Europe. You know, it's easy for us in travel to go, oh, woe is me, I, 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 my business is bad, but we're privileged people, you know, yeah. I mean, we're, uh, in, I'm well employed, I've got a comfortable house, I'm healthy, I've got loved ones, I'm uh, living in a beautiful part of the world, um, and this uh, COVID is, I hope, shining a light on the um, inequities on this planet within our country and between our country and other other. Uh, countries. Uh, I think there's, I, I, I try to think of bonuses. It's a strange thing, but COVID bonuses. And one of them might be to recognize that 
the problems that are going to confront us in the future are not conventional problems that you need a big military and walls to protect yourself from. You know, the problems that confront us in the future are going to be blind to walls and blind to borders, and you can't get them with a tank or a bomb. Uh, it's going to be problems that are dealt with by uh, nations working together, by building bridges, not walls, uh, by embracing science, and by investing in soft power rather than hard power. We spend, yeah. seven, we spend $700 billion every year on military hardware. That's not where we need to put our money if we want to be safe. We need to put our money into education and healthcare and uh, development aid south of the border. We could whoop this thing here, but if it's raging south of the border, it's going to spill right back in and we're back in, at, at point one or square mm -hmm. one. It's a little bit beyond the grasp of the average uh, uh, American or a lot of the, the American voters, but we're going to wake up to this sooner or later that we're in a new age now. That's sort of the fundamental philosophical thing where this is a bigger crisis than my ability to lead tours around Europe. But getting back to my, just my job as being uh, your globetrotting uh, guinea pig and your tour guide, uh, we all, a lot of us are bitten by uh, the travel bug. And, uh, you know, we're just, uh, oh, I'm at home. And I've been getting more publicity than ever because I'm the travel guy that's locked up at home. I'm in Time Magazine this week. I was in the New York Times pod, daily podcast. These are big uh, media breaks for me. I'm not that big of a celebrity, but I'm a guy who's well known as an enthusiastic traveler. And they want to know, what's he doing at home? The other day, I was just walking down the street, and I, I noticed a snail on my neighbor's fence. And all I could think of was escargot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, we're, I, I'm working really hard and creatively at employing my traveler's spirit right here in my community. Mm -hmm. And uh, it can be done. A traveler, you don't need a passport and a plane ticket to be a traveler. Right. You, know, you need to have a creative uh, uh, spirit. Uh, a, a joy of life, a curiosity, a willingness to get out of your comfort zone and a willingness to try something new and make friends with something you didn't think was a friend. <laughs> and that's, we can do that. Uh, so that's what I'm doing. I'm learning how to cook. I'm, I'm learning why people love their dogs. I'm, uh, every sunset is like a devotional. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. And so, I heard you like pasta. I heard well, pasta's I, your new thing now. Well, I know how to cook pasta now, which yeah. is a new thing. So <laughs> that's nice. It's nothing to brag about, but I, that oven you see in the back, I had never turned it on in 10 years of living in this house mm -hmm. all this COVID thing. <laughs> so I'm just, a, I'm just a person whose life is out of balance. I'm a workaholic. Uh, I'm blessed because I found my niche. But uh, I think this whole crisis is uh, like a rehab for somebody who's addicted to being productive. Mm. I, really, I really think this is God's way of telling us to slow down, take a breath. <laughs> There's more to life than increasing its speed. Now, Rick, in your new book, For the Love of Europe, you have a quote on page 367, and I'll just read it. Travel can and should change our perspectives and broaden our views. And as you were speaking earlier to what a lot of the people you take on travel perhaps are not focused about in terms of some of these huge social transformational things that are going on, I think that quote really speaks to travel as that bridge builder, travel as that thing that really helps to see our common humanity, so to speak. And you've had a chance to explore a lot of this over, over, over your life. How is the moment of now impacting you and perhaps your worldview about things and where you'd like to focus going forward? Ian, this is just kind of um, piling on to the uh, inspiration I got, uh, got out of the 9-11 uh, tragedy. 
about how we need to get to know the world better. We need, if, if we're fearful, it's because we don't know what we're afraid of. And uh, fear is for people who don't get out very much. The most frightened people in our society are people with no passports, buried way in the middle of this nation of ours, whose worldview is shaped by commercial TV news, who choose their media sources, and that bolsters their preconceptions. I was just thinking the other day as a tour guide, the most profitable tour I could possibly take would be a busload of people who, who are those faces that I see at a Trump rally. Uh, I, I would love to have a busload of, uh, of Trump's base on my bus in Europe. And then I could get them uh, a little bit more, okay, okay, it's not right or wrong, but there are people who see things differently than you do. And this is a beautiful opportunity to, to get to know, you know a little bit of the other 96% of humanity that, that doesn't see things maybe like Americans do, that, that are not burdened with our ethnocentricity. What a delight it is for a tour guide to be able to take people who are enjoying the, the sort of birth pains of a broader perspective, a global point of view. That's what I'm all about as a teacher. My mission as a workaholic, as a tour organizer, as somebody here employing 100 people in travel, is to inspire Americans to venture beyond Orlando to get out of our comfort zone. And there's nothing wrong with Orlando. There's nothing wrong with escapism tourism, you know? That's fine. But it tends to dumb us down. It's a poor excuse for getting out there and getting to know the world. There's only one book in the United States in normal times that outsells my Rick Steves Italy guidebook, and that's the Guide to Disney World. So it's a huge market. After three or four trips to Disney World, uh, let's try Port Portugal, you know? Yeah, they speak a different language. Yeah, they eat barnacles. They walk instead of getting their car, but uh, you can get to know them. Portugal, they've legalized all drugs. They don't have anybody in prison. Wow, what a concept. You know, you don't <laughs> have to do it, but you could talk to them. It'd be great. And the port's pretty good. It's actually one <laughs> of our- The port is our, great. Yeah. <laughs> you got it. Speaking as a good travel. Yeah, oh, the port. Oh. This is the award-winning World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. World Footprints connects you to the world through powerful storytelling that uncovers the full narrative of our cultural and human experiences. Travel deeper by visiting our website, worldfootprints.com, and make sure you sign up for our newsletter and receive a special gift we have just for subscribers. I was really, really um, tickled to see that you started your new book, Rick Steves for the Love of Europe with Portugal and Spain. There you go. For the Love of Europe. Yes. And, uh, hey, there we go. <laughs> yeah, you know, I had, oh, there's, there's happy Rick. <laughs> but, when is know, Rick not happy? Rick is oh, always yeah. happy. <laughs> well, I was really happy when I collected these hundred articles and I wanted to kick things off with a bang, you know. I really thought uh, the Spain and Portugal would be the best place to, mm. to start it off with. So we started right there in Portugal. You know, when I, when I read through the book at the very end, and I think, Ian, you, were, you were, uh, pulled a quote from the very end of it where I was sort of summing it up, you know, and, and looking at overarching uh, themes in here. And one thing is so clear. It's people that carbonates no. the experience. And if you're not meeting people, I don't care how many Instagram shots you're getting for, with your selfie stick with all those other Instagram people that go to the same spot without even knowing the name of the town or who lives there. They just know where they have to go for their Instagram selfie. That's symptomatic of a, a very concerning change in the way we travel, you know. You've yeah. got to get out of your comfort zone. You've got to meet mm -hmm. the people, become a temporary local. And when I page through all these essays, my favorite essays, like my favorite 
tour experiences, my favorite TV shows and so on, is when we meet people. When, uh, you know, if you read the book, you would, you'd get to shake hands with the carillonist. You know, a carillon is the church bell, bell yeah. choir, all the bells that have a different, like a keyboard. And they've got a keyboard, which is like the um, foot pedals on an organ. But the carillonist plays it with his fist, like this. Mm. And uh, if, if a guy's done that for his whole career, he has a deformed hand. His little finger is twice as thick as it should be with a huge callus right there. You shake hands with that guy, all of a sudden, you realize, whoa, this is what a church carillonist is. His world is different. And then you listen to his concert. At the end of the concert, halfway up the church spire, he sticks his head out the window and he waves his funny-looking hand at you. And you know you've had a little bite of Europe. Yeah. You, you can go to that bed and, bed and breakfast like I wrote about in Dubrovnik, and you get to know your host, and he's got the mangled remains of a mortar on his mantle. And that was the mortar that destroyed his family home. And he rebuilt it, and he turned it into a bed and breakfast. And now he's hosting the children of the people who launched that mortar, the Serbs that launched that mortar under Dubrovnik. And he's got a positive spirit. He's living together with his neighbors. He's learned from history. That's an amazing thing. And I can think of riding in the boat with my friend Piero in Venice and understanding what it's like to live, to be one of the 60,000 Venetians that live in this little town that all of us inundate. He's got his parallel world. It's, it's in his boat. I can go with my friend uh, Ollie hiking in the Swiss Alps and venture over there and find those little Edelweiss, not pick them, but find them and admire them. And then we can, we can harness up and have the carabiners and we can go around the cliff on the Via Ferrata, the Iron Way it's called. And you are literally hanging on a cliff. The Swiss are comfortable with their cables. I'm not. I don't trust cables. And I'm looking down through my legs at little cows a thousand feet straight down that are about this big. And, and this is a, a nice day out for Ollie, you know. And I'm having that experience inching along the cable on the side of that cliff. That's an experience I want to share. I want to stand on the bluff in the west coast of Portugal with the old guy who speaks Irish first and English second. Mm. <laughs> out at the Atlantic and then he says, ah, the next parish over is Boston. There are hundreds and hundreds of those kind of interactions that I've enjoyed. And to collect them all in this book was one of the great joys. And I locked myself down last year, not knowing I'd be locked down this year in order to write this book, to collect all these ideas. And it was actually quite timely because there's no better book for a time now when so many travelers want to be going but can't. I can share my favorite experiences of 40 years of traveling through Europe in this 400-page book. I was just in a recording studio for 35 hours reading this book. And it was hot and muggy and just camped up in the studio, reading 400 pages very carefully for the audiobook, I thought it was going to be a brutal experience. And when I was done, I thought this was a delight. It was so much fun just to relive all of that and to actually say it to my travelers. I'm just really excited about this book. Well, I have a ton of questions, but um, the, the first one I want to ask is, um, speaking of the book, how did you and when did you collect these stories? Because I know when you first started to travel, you journaled a ton. And so yeah. you had a lot of early travel memories, but a lot of these stories seem to have come from your time when your uh, PBS TV show launched and in yeah. book writing. Honestly, I don't know how you're doing it, Rick, because when we travel, I don't have time to sit down and journal. I mean, where are you finding the time? Are you not sleeping? Well, I don't do stuff late at night. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in my hotel room when people are out clubbing, you know. But uh, I've got this. I don't have many pictures of when I was a kid traveling, but there's me as a, probably a college kid at the train station writing in my journal. Let's see. Here's if I can show it to you. 
There's a page out of the journal. Yeah. But, but I've, got, I've got 10 of these journals, one for each trip in my younger days. And these were, I don't know why, but I just had to write stuff down. I mean, if anybody looked at me then, I was a piano teacher. I was happy to be a piano teacher. I fully expected to be a piano teacher all my life. And I would travel in the summer when the kids didn't want to practice. You know, that was my cool thing. And then I realized, hey, I, I'm actually a travel writer wanting to burst out of that. So uh, I, I just love that. And I think it's a good discipline. To be honest, now I've got so many work responsibilities when I'm in Europe that I, I spend as much time at my laptop doing that kind of writing. Right now, that is, in fact, this is the older Rick there uh, <laughs> at his little table doing his guidebook research. When you write, my windowsill in my office is filled with 50 guidebooks. And basically, with my staff, I've written 50 books. And it's all the guidebooky kind of stuff. And to write for the love of Europe, I had to discipline myself not to put the practical details in. I don't care where you leave your bag. I don't care that you got to remember on Tuesday the museum's closed. I don't care that, you know, if you're doing the train from here to here, you should stop there uh, for a beautiful view and a lunch. That's practical. That's for the guidebooks. What I care about is those images, those little beachcombing on the Thames at low tide in London and picking up pieces of history, standing on top of the new parliament building in German, surrounded by teary-eyed Germans, and understanding mm -hmm. why are they weeping? What is so joyful about this moment? There are so many of those kind of vivid images that I wanted to collect. So that's been my initiative lately, and, and it's, uh, it's really fun to do. This is World Footprints, and you've been listening to our conversation with Rick Steves as we discuss his newest book, for the love of Europe and issues confronting travel today. I wanted to ask you, and, and you touched on it when you mentioned uh, the reference to the Reichstag. Uh, my interest in architecture, I was happy to see that you captured why the building was redesigned with its glass dome and the transparency for democracy. That's an iconic building. And your book speaks to some of these places that are iconic places to visit and you still draw inspiration from them as as well as the kind of off the beaten path stuff that you share with us speak to that speak to how these iconic places that people may say oh these are the touristy places but you still find something in them and it seems like it's with the people that you've connected with in those places well i just had a hundred tour guides in this room right here in january from europe Flew them in, they're in Seattle for a week of workshops and so on, and how are we going to teach together? And one thing we all acknowledged is everybody wants to see the icons, the Leaning Tower, the you know the Eiffel Tower, the Beef Eaters, the slap dancing, the odling, the, the bullfights and uh, you know, the saunas and the, all the cliché things you want to do. I'm all over that. I love it. But I want to present it in context because it really has a meaning. What do you know about the Leaning Tower of Pisa, other than they had lousy soils engineers 800 years ago, you know? Uh, well, that's an, an ensemble of buildings. You've got the bell tower, you've got the cathedral, and you've got the baptistry. And the baptistry is apart from the cathedral because back then you couldn't go into the church until you'd been baptized. And the bell tower is really important because they didn't have watches and clocks, and this told out the rhythm of time. It told the hours, it told you when to celebrate, it told you when there was a problem. It was just very integral to the community. We want to give context to that so our sightseeing makes sense. So you're going to go see the aqueduct in Pontu Garden and Avignon, but you need to know what was an aqueduct. An aqueduct was built 1,800 years ago by Romans. 
30 miles long to build a man-made river engineered to lose one inch every 100 yards for 30 miles to bring water into the great city of Nîmes without having peasants having to carry it there. There, I just spent 20 seconds talking about what an uh, aqueduct is. The average tourist has no idea what an aqueduct is. They're just taking a photograph and where's the toilet and where's the postcard rack and it's back on the bus. So a good tour guide inspires people. Ian, you were talking about the, uh, the Reichstag Dome. I was up there and I wrote about it in the book, surrounded by Germans who were just overwhelmed with emotion mm. and Americans who didn't have a clue. And I just thought, I'm living in a dumbed down society. Mm. And I don't want to live in a dumbed down society. And in our society today, we are aggressively, intentionally defunding humanities, social sciences, the arts, history, things that really make us a, a thinking, creative, critical thinking society, things that weave the fabric of our society so we can have a smart electorate. We are defunding that and we are pushing everybody into occupations to make a lot of money so we can be mindless producer consumers. We need to be good workers and productive and so on, but we need to be creative, critical thinkers. In Europe, they've learned the consequences of a dumbed down electorate. They paid a huge price for it in Germany. In the United States, we're paying a huge price for it right now. And if you wonder why are we in the jam we're in right now, it's because we have underfunded education, especially with disadvantaged parts of our population. And if we want to do anything to bring our country together, we need to recognize the importance of educating our people, educating our people across the board so we can have a more sophisticated electorate rather than trusting people who are bombastic, people who have more money to advertise, people who are charismatic con artists, and people who are in the grips of people that want to make money off of a dumbed-down society. You make more money off of a dumbed-down society if you're a big-time businessman. I make more money off of a dumbed-down society if I'm going to do tourism to the beach, you know? But I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm inspiring Americans to be engaged. And I yes. think more of us need to make a pact with ourselves that we will inspire our market segment to be engaged, to be smart, to be thoughtful, to be eager to get out of our comfort zone and learn other people's perspectives. That's why I'm so thankful for public broadcasting. You know, I do a lot of work in public television and public radio, and I spend a lot of time, I'm doing a pledge drive right now. I mean, just the stuff I'm talking about is what I would be saying on a pledge drive. It's critical and it's a battle right now because there are powerful forces in our society that would rather just dumb us down. And that was an inspiration, uh, you know, Tanya and Ian, that I, that I got on top of that Reichstag building. Mm. And, and I just think people can be inspired in their travels if they let themselves. My whole thing is, is I never travel without my notepad in my pocket. And I'm jotting down these ideas that come to me because I weave them into my writing. Everybody travels, but not everybody has their feelers out for these thoughts as they flutter by. And that's what a travel writer needs to do. And then hopefully inspire other people when they are fortunate enough to travel, to travel in a way that is meaningful and, yeah. and transformational. This is World Footprints, and you're listening to Rick Steves as we discuss his newest book, For the Love of Europe and Issues Confronting Travel Today. That is our key, uh, our key platform, the transformative power of travel. And so I want to ask you, you know, all of the stories that you, you shared with us now, um, the stories you have in your book, it says something when you, through these stories, cause goosebumps to, to appear on another travel journalist. I mean, I, I you know, as, nice. as you were talking, I was enjoying 
in, in visualizing your stories. And so I want to ask, out of all of the wonderful experiences you've had, what has been your most transformative trip? Hmm. Probably my most transformative trip was my first trip as a 14-year-old. Very egocentric and ethnocentric and going around Europe with my parents and uh, just being wowed by how big the world is and how full of diversity it is and, and how it's filled with love and beautiful people and, and uh, joy and challenges and families just like mine. I remember I was uh, in the park in Oslo and my parents were just loving me. And I was just a nerdy 14-year-old and my parents didn't have a lot of money. They were sacrificing hugely to take me to Europe and give me this experience. They'd never been to Europe either, and they were compromising on what they could experience so they could take their, their little boy. And I looked at my parents, and I just thought, you guys are just loving me just wildly. And then I looked around that park, and I saw it was filled with other parents loving their kids just as much as my parents loved me. Ha. And I thought, wow, this world is filled with equally lovable, precious little children <laughs> of God and that I never even had a clue about until my parents took me overseas. Uh, later on in that same trip, I was on the carpet in front of the TV with my relatives in Bergen in Norway, and we were watching Neil Armstrong take that first step on the moon. And I, I heard the broadcast in Norwegian, in mm. a giant leap for mankind. And uh, I, thought, I, I thought, my friends back home are all waving American flags. Yay, go America. And I was thinking, wait a minute, the whole world is waving flags right now. And they're not American flags, they're the flags of humanity. Mm. And we have planted a, uh, uh, ourselves on the moon. What a triumph for humanity. I mean, great for America too. But I was so thankful to get that little nudge that it's, it's bigger than 4% of our planet. It's bigger mm. than 300 million Americans. It's a human thing. So, these are the, so, so that was the, the impactful trip. And then lately, the most the, the great trips that I've been on are the ones that um, I'm really getting out of my comfort zone. I was just in Ethiopia and Guatemala this year, last year. Mm. Powerful experiences. I did a TV show about the roots of hunger and why modern development aid is a great thing. And that's one of our new TV shows. People can watch it anytime they want on YouTube or on my website. It's called Hunger and Hope, Lessons from Ethiopia and Guatemala. I took the TV crew to Iran and, learned, and did a show about uh, Iran to find out what makes them tick did a show, a very powerful show in the Holy Land on both sides of the wall, learning the, the true narratives of the difficulties in the Holy Land, the Jewish narrative and the Palestinian narrative. That was powerful. Um, those kind of experiences I not only love, but I love to learn about them and package them into a book or a TV show and bring it home. So uh, that's what keeps me working hard. And I'm thankful I've got a talented staff to help me out on that. And I'm thankful we've got media that you know, public media that assumes an attention span and that respects people's intelligence and is enthusiastic about bringing content to people that's not motivated by how do you keep advertisers happy, but by how do we just inspire people to reach out and embrace the world. It's a beautiful thing about uh, thoughtful media. Uh, just as frustrating and disappointing that, that trashy media is, thoughtful media is, is a real blessing for our community. Rick, as we wrap up with you, I wanted to ask you about uh, travel to India, which I know had a big impact on you, uh, and I just wanted to wanted you to have that opportunity to talk to us about about your love for India. Yeah, well, that's you know you're talking about the most impactful trip. That was probably the best trip I ever had. I was uh, 
I was just getting out of college and it was the hippie trip from Istanbul to Kathmandu, you know, and I did that across India. And then I got to India and it was like coming home in a strange way. It was the weirdest thing. I'd never been there before, but in so many ways, it was like coming home, crossing the border from Pakistan into India. And a great thing about India is it's filled with joy. I was afraid to go there because I thought it was filled with desperation and, and hunger and, and difficulties. But there's a weird kind of uh, bulk joy. And people can be poor, but altogether there's so much joy with a billion people in India. Also, I'm, I try not to be ethnocentric, but I am ethnocentric. You know, my parents, my grandparents came over from Norway. I'm a Lutheran. I mean, you know, my friends celebrate Christmas the same way I do. I live in a community I'm looking at what looks like a Norwegian fjord. I just love reminding myself that I am not the norm. And when you go to India, you realize you're not the norm. I mean, uh, it's like somebody's rearranged all of your cultural furniture. It just wallops your ethnocentrism. You go to a restaurant and, and people are eating with their hands. And, and you realize these are not uh, hard scrabble people. These are elegant, professional, impressive individuals that could eat with a spoon and fork, but they choose to use their fingers for what God gave them their fingers for, to nourish themselves. It's a beautiful, holistic kind of thing that we don't even think about. We're more inclined to discount those people because they don't eat like we do. You know, I, I went on an airplane and I, I just was amazed that there was a decal in the toilet that explained to people how not to stand on the rim of the toilet and squat over it. Because people on that plane, believe it or not, didn't know how to use a Western-style toilet. And I say, believe it or not, because I think that's the norm, but that's not the norm. The people on this planet who sit on something when they go to the bathroom are the oddballs. We don't like to be told that, but that's <laughs> just the fact. Um, so those are the kind of uh, jolts you get when you travel. Uh, and you don't get them unless you put yourself out of your comfort zone. I, I, I went to uh, Papua New Guinea, and I worshipped with uh, Lutherans that knew nothing about the clichetic Lutheran kind of style of worship. And uh, it was just one of the most beautiful things to, to realize that the more you learn about this world, the broader your viewpoint gets, the, the more you celebrate diversity. And I think if the world was going to do one really smart investment, the world would pool its resources <laughs> and give every American a gap year or maybe a gap three months when they graduate from school and send them. They can't go to the Bahamas or Cancun or Hawaii. They've got to go to some place that really is different. All expenses <laughs> paid, not on a tour, just on your own and get to know people. And then when they fly home, they, for the rest of their lives, would be different citizens. Yeah. They would yes. vote differently. They would vote differently. They would be more compassionate. They would step into the voting booth and have this perverse notion that I'm not voting for what's best for me. I'm voting for what's best for our society. Amen. That's a fundamental difference. And, Amen. Uh, to me, that's just enlightened as a citizen. I have one final question for you um, before we, we go. Pretend the pandemic is over and you're going on a long-haul flight. If you could choose anyone to sit next to, past or present, who might that be and why? It would probably be my daughter, Jackie, because she's getting married. And we would be going over there on a trip that I was going to do last month, but I had to cancel. Her beautiful fiancé is from the Midwest. Their family has never been to Europe. And I had booked an entire Rick Steves tour bus, 50 seats, but we only put 25 people on it. My son was going to be the tour guide, Andy, her brother. 
And we were going to do a best of Europe tour in three weeks. And it was going to be designed so all of Jackie's in-laws, new in-laws after their marriage, would know the wonders of Europe. And I would get a chance to know them. <laughs> and it was going to be the trip of a lifetime. It's going to be the first time I ever went on a Rick Steves tour where I wasn't working, where I was doing what you're supposed to do on one of these tours, just having fun with your friends. And that was going to be great. We had to cancel it, of course, but I told everybody, we're not canceling it, we're just delaying it until we come out of this and we'll be able to travel again. Well, Rick, I know we have a lot to talk about and I really want to have you back. You know, Maya Angelou told me when I interviewed her um, and asked her to come back, she said, sure, we have something to talk about. And I know we have a lot to talk about because you touched, so. you touched our hearts as well. well um, so thank you so much for, for sharing with us today. I'd love to come back. And I'll just say right now, happy travels, even if we're all just staying home for a little while. Oh my gosh, how much I love Rick Steves. We've had him on our show before. We've had very engaging conversations with him in past, you know, to talk about a new book or a new project he had. But the discussion this time, even though we did focus on his book for the love of Europe, this felt like a very different and intimate and personal conversation. It very much was. And the thing that I liked about Rick in this conversation, we got a chance to to see and appreciate his passion, why travel is so important, why Americans need to travel, why we need to get those passports and kind of get out of our silos. Did it have a political angle to it? Yeah, to some degree, but I think it really speaks to the fact that many of us have gotten to a place where we look at the world and sometimes don't appreciate just how connected we are to other places. And it really allows us to grow personally. It helps us to see our own situations differently. And as Rick spoke about, the importance of travel and civic education and, and understanding why we should do certain things, a lot of that just flows from having those personal interactions that we've spoken about that Rick spoke to so eloquently with other people from around the world can be a difference maker and a change maker in all of our lives. Well, and, and I also felt that, you know, when Rick was talking, uh, I kept saying to myself, oh my gosh, who's speaking? Ian, myself, Rick? I mean, he he was talking for us and really communicating our belief system and the things we've been advocating and, you know, our common humanity and talking about the gentleman, the, the um, uh, ring, the church uh, bell ringer. You know, and he what he pointed out was that, gosh, this is just this is a fellow human being, um, you know, and, and this is what makes him different. But this is what makes us all so similar. I loved this conversation. And as we close, it seems very appropriate to end with a quote that we found in Rick's book, newest book for the love of Europe. I realize the most memorable travel moments aren't accidents. You create them consciously by being a free-spirited extrovert. Start conversations and then let serendipity lead you astray. Let surprises waylay your careful plans. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick and we're so honored that you chose to take this adventure with us. Thank you for spending this time and allowing us to connect you to the world through the stories we share on World Footprints.
This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide, including iHeartRadio, Public Radio Exchange, iTunes and Stitcher. Connect with the world one story at a time with World Footprints. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and explore hundreds of articles from international travel writers. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast.